Hi everyone, Chris here from the Geology Podcast Network. Have you ever stared out your window and wondered what interesting secrets lay just beneath the surface? Don't let the Kentucky bluegrass or your mother's geraniums fool you. There is exciting geology even in your backyard. In this podcast, we explore the amazing discoveries and geologic events that happened right in someone's backyard. I've got two little boys, aged nine and seven, and whenever we are out and about, they are always picking up rocks and sticks. It seems that we are constantly asking them to limit their daily rock pickup to one or two per day. Hey dad, they'll say, look at these 23 rocks that I found. Can I bring them home? To which I reply, yeah, you can bring one. I'd be happy for them to bring home more, but most of the time it's just a bunch of boring quartzite. So the other day, on an evening stroll, my older son said, wouldn't it be amazing if we found a dinosaur fossil in our backyard? And I said, unfortunately, son, the rocks in our backyard are 2.7 billion year old nices. So no dinosaurs there. However, one young boy in New Mexico had a surprise backyard find that he is unlikely to ever forget. In July 2017, a nine-year-old boy named Jude was out for a walk near his home. Jude was playing hide-and-seek with his little brother, and while running to undoubtedly the best hiding place he could imagine, he tripped and found himself face-to-face with a massive jawbone. Jude initially thought it was nothing more than a cow skull, though still something exciting for a nine-year-old. When he called his dad over to take a look, his dad said it definitely wasn't a cow. So they took a picture and went home to do some research. Now, Jude was a kid who had always been enamored with ancient life. No surprise, what little kid doesn't love dinosaurs? And when Jude and his father couldn't find a match to this skull online, Jude suggested that they call a paleontologist, call an expert. Now, I often get calls, emails, and instant messages from people asking me to identify rocks, minerals, and fossils. Most of the time, the rock is just another boring piece of quartzite. But when Professor Peter Hood from New Mexico State University received a call from Jude's dad, I suspect it was not the first time he had received a call asking to identify a fossil. Can you imagine how many times he must get a phone call like this and it turns out to be something no more exciting than a ruddy cow bone? If I got that call, excuse me, Professor, I think we found a mastodon skull. My eye roll would have been so intense that it would likely give me whiplash. However, Peter was much more polite than I maybe would have been. As Jude's dad explained, they thought they'd found some type of ancient elephant skull, and Professor Hood's interest was genuinely piqued. He said that he was real excited and that he really likes to encourage people to be aware of the amazing things all around them. So when Professor Hood came out to inspect the find, he confirmed that indeed Jude had found a fossil skull of a stegomastodon. And what was great and really laudable on the part of Jude and his dad was that they didn't try to excavate the fossil themselves. As an undergrad, I had the opportunity to work as a fossil prepper in the Dinosaur Museum at Brigham Young University. This was, without a doubt, the best job on campus. After locating fossils in the field, we would assess the fragility of the fossil. And in many cases, the fossils were so fragile that the slightest brush would destroy the fossil. So we used a chemical called polyvinyl acetate, affectionately known as Vinac, that we would use to stabilize the fossil and prepare them for transport. 
We would then cover the fossil and the surrounding rock with multiple layers of burlap and plaster. And once the fossil was entirely encased in plaster, we would load it on a truck and transport it back to the museum. So then once at the museum, we'd pull off the plaster cast and use mini pneumatic tools like those that you'd find at a dentist's office to chip away at the rock and reveal the fossil. So the situation with our stegomastodon in New Mexico was no different. Peter Hood and his team came and carried away the plastered fossil for final preparation and preservation. You can find that exact stegomastodon now on display at the University of New Mexico. What fascinates me about the Pleistocene and Pliocene proboscideans, that is, elephant-like creatures with long noses, is that their history and evolution is so dramatically different from other mammals. The dominant clade of mammals alive today is called Borotheria, which include hooved animals like horses, pod animals like cats and dogs, bats, hedgehogs, and primates. The common ancestor of Borotheria likely dates back to just before the dinosaurs went extinct at the end of the Cretaceous, around 65 million years ago. The other dominant clade of mammals is Atlantigenata, that split from Borotheria about 140 million years ago. Today, Atlantigenata comprises sloths, armadillos, anteaters, elephants, sea cows, and aardvarks. So we've got these two dominant clades of modern mammals that were separated about 140 million years ago. And then Atlantigenata, the clade that makes up our elephants, has two dominant suborders, Xenartha and Afrotheria, that diverged over 100 million years ago when the South Atlantic opened and separated South America from Africa. The ancestors of the elephants were Afrotherians, the part of Atlantigenata stranded on Africa when the South Atlantic opened. So then jump forward 60 some odd million years to the Oligocene, where our story of the Proboscideans continues around 37 million years ago with a semi-aquatic Moritherium. As the Tethys Ocean closed during the Oligocene, these semi-aquatic Proboscideans moved back onto land as grasslands expanded across these newly connected continents. And this new group of Proboscideans spread across Africa, Asia, and Europe. As elephantiforms spread throughout what I guess we could refer to as the old world of Asia, Africa, and Europe, Divergence also occurred between what we now see today as the African and Asian elephants. During the Pleistocene and widespread glaciation, grasslands expanded even further as sea level dropped significantly. This created a number of land bridges that connected land masses that today are separated by oceans. And this allowed ancient Asian elephantiforms to migrate across these land bridges to North and eventually South America. The best known of these land bridges is known as Beringia, a land bridge that connected uh, what is now Russia with Alaska. And the migration of mammals large and small continued on and off for nearly 30 million years as the ephemeral Bering land bridge waxed and waned. 
In fact, the largest migration of mammals is argued to have occurred 7 million years ago. This is something that I didn't fully appreciate, that we are all very well familiar with the Pleistocene migration, where we have woolly mammoths, mastodons, woolly rhinos, horses, camels, and musk oxen, and that also include humans, but I hadn't realized that these migrations across Beringia have taken place for the last tens of millions of years. So then, coming a bit closer to the present in the Pleistocene, this most recent uh, land bridge across Beringia, when humans and the Pleistocene megafauna coexisted in North America from about 20,000 years to about 11,000 years ago. Now, humans' relationships with the woolly mammoths in particular deserve additional attention. And I'm sure we've all seen dioramas of ancient humans throwing spears at mammoths, and making their, their houses and their clothing from mammoth bones and skins. And there is substantial evidence that woolly mammoths were a food source of humans living in Europe, Asia, and North America, going back as far as Homo erectus 1.8 million years ago. In fact, there are even some that have suggested that overhunting was the cause of mammoth extinction. So Jude's story of finding the remains of ancient megafauna is not the first account of someone finding a Pliocene or Pleistocene megafauna in their backyard. Another interesting story comes from 2015, when a farmer in Michigan was digging a drainage ditch on his farm that he'd recently purchased, and he pulled out mud-covered bones of some animal he'd never seen before. And sure enough, it ended up being a mammoth. And what was interesting in this scenario is that the ownership of fossils found on someone's property is fraught with legal arguments that vary from place to place. Some U.S. courts have deemed that fossils are minerals in the sense that they who own the mineral rights to the land also own the fossils on the land as well. So in the case of the Michigan mammoth, the mammoth bones were the property of the farm owner. So what to do in this scenario? Does the farmer keep it, sell it, donate it, or just leave it in the ground and, and plow his crops over the top? So in this case, the landowner, Jim Bristle, was in a tight spot and he needed to harvest his crops. And so finding this mammoth skeleton was actually a burden to him. So farmer Jim said, even though it's history, if you're a farmer, you've got to harvest crops when they're ready to go. So he gave Professor Daniel Fisher, the director of the Museum of Paleontology at the University of Michigan, and his team only one day to get the fossils out. So in that one day, the paleontology team got to work and removed the pelvis, the skull, tusks, shoulder blades, several of the vertebrae and the ribs. And given the state of the sediment and the state of preservation of the mammoth, Fisher believes that ancient humans likely killed the mammoth and then stored it in a pond to retrieve the meat at a later date. But lucky for this paleontology team, these humans forgot to retrieve their prize and the mammoth then stayed there. The pond was filled in with sediment, preserving the mammoth bones for Fisher and his team to, to eventually excavate. And then two years later, Fisher and his team returned and were able to retrieve the rest of the bones at the site that ended up amounting to a nearly 60% complete skeleton.
like proboscideans were widespread throughout North America, Eurasia, Beringia, and even in South America until the end of the Pleistocene around 12,000 years ago. So how old is the sediment in your backyard? Who knows, there may be a mammoth lurking just beneath the soil. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, please feel free to share it with your friends, students, professors, and even your mother. Backyard Geology is part of the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Traveling Geologists.